how many of you all, maybe some of you are still in there as I look around, how many of you older folks remember from school days when you used to have show and tell? Yeah. I love show and tell. My memory's not good enough to remember what I actually brought on those days, but thinking back at what I probably brought, it was probably my Optimus Prime Transformer, back when they still made the, the metal ones. Show and tell was always cool, and one of the things that's neat about show and tell is it it shows and tells you something about the person that's showing and telling, right? As I was looking at our passage today, Matthew 11, starting at verse 20, I was thinking about when God has show and tell. When, when He shows us something about Himself or, or tells us something about Himself. Thinking on the one hand, what a great privilege that is. Something we should never cease to say thank you for. But also, on the other hand, that when God does show and tell in our lives, it also comes with accountability. It also comes with the question, what will I do with what He has shown me about Himself? How, how will I respond to what He has told me about Himself? I want to start with this premise in Matthew 11, verse 20. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. Matthew eleven twenty says, Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. That is, to, to speak down on, to berate them. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Why? Why? Matthew tells us, Because they did not repent. Now, repent is one of those words we say a lot. Maybe some of us are saying, can you unpack what exactly does that mean to repent? And I sum it up like this. To repent is to have a change of heart and mind that leads to a change of life. It is to turn from sin and self-sufficiency to trust in Christ. I think about how Jesus wanted that response to what he had shown and told them. And I think about those lawsuit emails. You ever get those? Like sometimes you'll get an email like such and such a milk company messed up the milk and you're entitled to like $7.42. But at the bottom there's always a little thing that says you got to respond by such and such a date. If you don't respond, you don't enjoy the benefits of what's going on there. Right? There's a response required. The response Jesus was looking for in these people was okay. repentance. And he's going to go on to give three examples of the cities he's talking about. There, there are cities that were all around the Sea of Galilee. Cities where he spent a lot of time teaching, doing miracles. Exhibits 1 and 2, verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. We don't know a lot about Chorazin. But if this is the Bethsaida we're thinking of, it's the same city where Andrew and his brother Peter came from, Philip. It's probably where Jesus fed the, the crowd of 5,000 plus with the little boy's lunch just outside that town because he asked Philip, hey, where, where, where should we get food for these people to test him? Philip lived there. What did he say? Woe to you. What is woe? It is an expression of judgment. 
on the one hand, but it's also an expression of sorrow. It's also an expression of sorrow on our Savior's list. Why? Why woe to you? He says, For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He's saying, if the miracles that I've done among you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Maybe you're saying, who's Tyre and Sidon? What cities are those? Well, we know from the Old Testament, repeatedly they're mentioned, they were seaport cities. Because of that, they had become wealthy. That alone was not their sin. But in their wealth, they became idolatrous. They became wicked. Amos chapter 1 verse 9 tells us they even took Israelites, God's people, and sold them as slaves to Edom. And they were punished for their sin by Nebuchadnezzar and Alexander the Great. He says, but if I had been there, if they had seen what I've done among you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now this is cool. We talk about God's omniscience, that he knows all. We are praising him Wednesday night for that at the prayer meeting. God knows everything. But what this tells us is he also even knows what would have happened if things had been different. Think about how mind-blowing that is. He says, if I had been there, they would have repented. But he looks back at these two, two Jewish cities that he's talking to, and he says, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Now, that would have been shocking for these Jewish cities to hear. Those are heathen, sinful cities. How, how could he say that? But just wait. There's something even more shocking coming. Exhibit 3, verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Some translations say you, Capernaum, which aren't exalted to heaven. That was a Jewish idiom that could mean a city's doing well. They were a prosperous city. They were on a major road in the Roman Empire. But there was something else that made them a very privileged city. You know what that was? Something we learn in the Gospels about Jesus' ministry. He lived in Capernaum for a good chunk of his ministry. Jesus lived there. You talk about privilege. Maybe some of them thought just based on that, hey, we're exalted to heaven, we're wealthy, we're rich. Jesus even lived here. Right? What does he say? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Some scholars tell us that when we went through Matthew 8 and 9, Five of those ten miracles in there happened right in this city of Capernaum for, for all to see. Jesus says, if I had done that in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Why? Because they would have repented. Verse 24, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, if the first one was shocking, this one even more so. We even know some about Sodom, right? I want to start with something some of us may not know about Sodom. What was their sin there? Ezekiel 16.49 tells us one thing. Says, Sodom and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. There was a selfishness 
brewing inside. The one most of us do know about is that homosexual perversion had reached such a level that lustfully they were knocking down Lust, Lot's door to have relations with his heavenly guests. You can imagine how shocking this was for Capernaum to say it will be more tolerable for that city than for them. Why? Jesus says if I had been there, they would have repented. Not Capernaum. Listen, I want you to think about something when we think about Capernaum. We read it earlier in Matthew chapter 4. Verse 15. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. What a privilege they had. The Son of God living in their zip code. They, they heard His teaching, saw His, his miracles, some probably on an almost daily basis. That light came with accountability. Think about how close they were to Jesus. Yet many of them had this word of judgment on them. Charles Erdman said it this way, The larger the opportunity for belief, the greater the condemnation is for rejection. D.A. Carson said it this way, The implications for Western English-speaking Christendom today are sobering. J. Vernon McGee, as only he can put it, is right to the point. He said, I'd much rather be in the darkness of a jungle without having heard the gospel than to be an officer in one of our modern churches having a Bible but never truly having accepted Christ as Savior. What are they getting at? It's what I want to share with you out of a pastor's heart of love. Do not let Sunday after Sunday of truth pass you by without letting Jesus hit you where you live. Without repenting. Without turning to Jesus for salvation. Without walking with Him. Please don't. Please don't let it pass you by without letting Him hit you where you live. I want to talk to you about two dangers. The danger of indifference. Do you notice Jesus doesn't say these cities were guilty of outward immorality? He doesn't say that. He says they did not repent. The danger of indifference, listen to this, to not choose is to choose. Have you chosen to repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior? I also want to talk to you about the danger of deflection. Just like I talked about some of those people in those cities might have been like, Sodom's, look what they did. Look what they did. It's always easier to find some other group of sinners to look down on instead of dealing with my own need for a Savior. My own need to repent and be forgiven. Now I know when we when we talk about words of woe and judgment, and Jesus said Hades, there are some objections in the human heart to a God who judges those who don't repent. But none of us are totally comfortable with it, but that's what the Bible teaches. Okay, and I want to share some things 
that have helped me over the years as I ponder this side of God, a God who's not only merciful, but also just. First, as Lecrae put it in one of his songs, God owes us nothing but a fierce hand. Every one of us is a sinner. All, all we deserve from God is an eternity in hell. That's all that's owed to us from Him. Second, think about this. Even human leaders have requirements for approaching. You doubt that. Just, just catch an airplane to Washington, D.C. and go hop the fence and try to run in the front door at the White House. See what happens. Even human leaders have requirements to approach. Why, why would we expect the almighty creator of the universe not to have the right to set his requirements to approach? Third, do you really want a, a God who doesn't judge sin? I don't think you do. You look around at the evil in the world, you want a God who just ignores all that? Well, some of us are like, maybe, maybe just mine. Uh. <laughs> no, that's not how it works. Okay? You say, well, not repent. What's the big deal on that? You've got to think of the measure of the gift he sent. His own son. Could there be a greater affront to God to say? I want you also think about this. He is just in everything he does. Even in his punishments. I believe part of what this passage is teaching is that not everyone in hell will suffer the same. When he says it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for some, more bearable for some, it tells me he is just even in his punishments. Don't mistake what I'm saying. It will be horrible for all. But he is just, even in his punishments. And last but not least, do you want a God who honors our choices? Who puts weight on our choices? Most of us would say yes. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said here. He said, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. He goes on, there are only two kinds of people, those who say, thy will be done to God, or those to whom God in the end says, thy will be done. Now I want to talk about a reality check. Without God's work, no one would be saved. Not a one in this room would be saved apart from God's work. Look at verse 25. At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. That word thank is translated in some translations as praise. It means to acknowledge God for who he is, his ways, his person. What does he praise him for? That you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. What things? The, the things about the kingdom of God. The things about Jesus being the Messiah. You've, you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. He is praising the Father for His sovereignty and salvation. Did, did you catch that? But we've got to unpack it because there's two groups here. He says, you have hidden these things from the, the wise and understanding. Does that mean it is wrong to get an education and that no one with an education comes to Jesus? No. No, that does not fit with the tenor of Scripture. What's he talking about? Those who are wise and understanding. 
He's referring to those who are wise and understanding in their own eyes. Those who depend on worldly human wisdom for everything and think, I need no revelation from God. C.S. Lewis put it this way, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. That was true of many of Israel's leaders at this time, right? Sadly. Hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Some translate that little children as babies, sucklings. These are people who are totally conscious of their dependence. They, they humbly confess their helplessness and need for God, for His revelation. I like what D.A. Carson said. He said, the point of interest is not their education any more than the point of interest in the little children is their age or size. The contrast is between those who are self-sufficient and deem themselves wise and those who are dependent and love to be taught. And he closes verse 26 with this thing. He says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And I think it's important for us to ask as we look at those two groups, which are you? Which am I? Are we humbly aware of our desperate dependence upon God? And in his revelation. Now I know when we think about God's sovereignty and salvation, that's another thing that we as finite men want to argue with. We don't like him being in control. We want to be in control. And listen, I've had questions about this. Maybe you do today. The questions themselves are, are not wrong. But I want to tell you a couple of things to keep in mind. Number one, as we process through God's sovereignty... We need to remember our place. If we have questions, we had better take them humbly. He is God. You are not. He is God. I am not. Paul brought this up in a conversation about God's sovereignty and salvation. Romans 9, 18. Says, he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? We need to remember our place. Second, there are examples in Scripture where we see that His sovereignty and, and a man's choice run the same direction. Think about Pharaoh. God sent Moses to say, Let my people go. And Pharaoh repeatedly said, No. Right? And we see two things about Pharaoh's heart going back and forth through the story multiple times. One are verses like this, Exodus 4.21, where God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. That's God's sovereignty. But we also see verses like Exodus 8.15. As when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them. As the Lord had said. You see how the two things are running together in Pharaoh's life? We see it again in Romans 1. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That means to push down things that are obvious to anyone with an open heart. To suppress the truth. For although they knew God, verse 21, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. Verse 26, to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Do you see them running together? Right? I, I want to suggest three ways to better spend our time than proudly arguing with God about His sovereignty. Three things that would be better, better use of our time. Number one, Follow Jesus' example here and say thank you for your sovereignty and salvation, Father. Because without it, not a one of us would be saved. Do you realize that even the faith to believe is the gift of a sovereign God? Ephesians 2.8 By grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Thank you for His sovereignty and salvation. Second better use of our time is ask ourselves, what have I done with what has been revealed to me? Especially if you, you grow up in a Christian home, you, you hear His truth on Sundays, you've seen His hand of blessing on your life. What have I done with that? Have I repented and, and turned to Him in faith? Romans 2.4 says God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Third better use of our time. Go and tell others that there is salvation available in Jesus Christ. Jesus put it this way in John 20. 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Next point I want to talk about is Relationship with God is the essence of eternal life. A lot of times we think about eternal life, the first thing we think about is forever in heaven. And that is a key part of it. But that's not the core of it. You know what the core of eternal life is? Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you and the one you have sent. It is relationship with God through Jesus. That's the essence of eternal life. And and I want to show you something. We get this glimpse of the intimate relationship between the Father and the Son right here. This is so precious. Like to get to look into this. Listen to what Jesus said in verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. Do you see the intimacy there? No one fully gets the Father except Jesus, and no one fully, fully gets Jesus except the Father. Tim Keller put it this way. You, you keep in mind the Holy Spirit as well. The life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love that creates a dance, particularly if there are three persons, each of whom moves around the other two. You say, wow, that's beautiful. God had that going on from eternity past. But here's the part that ought to blow our minds and make us thankful. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Wow, do you see? 
that that is an invitation to a relationship to, to join that dance. Tim Keller went on to explain it this way. God did not create us to get the cosmic infinite joy of mutual love and glorification. He already had that. But, but so that we could share it. We were made to join in the dance if we will center our lives on Him, serving Him not out of self-interest, but just for the sake of who He is, for the sake of His beauty and glory, we will enter the dance and share in the joy and love He lives in. How beautiful is that? And maybe you're here saying, I want that, but how? Here we come to some of my favorite words in all of Scripture. We, we started with the bad news, right? It was kind of heavy. Now we're coming around to some of the the best news I've ever heard. The best news I've ever heard. There's rest to be had when his revelation is received by faith. Let's look at verse 28. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Some of you need to hear those words this morning. I can't read those words without thinking about a trip to Fane Park we had one time. I was down there with some of the boys. And if you've ever been down there in Prescott Valley, you know there's a dam at the end of the lake. One side's the lake, the other side is a big drop-off. We were just walking around the lake, and we looked, and a guy from the other side started walking out onto that dam. It's not that wide, and he went out there and sat down in the middle and pulled out his cell phone. I said, hey, are you okay? He said, yeah, I'm okay. I'm thinking to myself, I know he's not okay if he's out on that dam. Something's going on here. And, and God put this verse on my heart. I said, hey man, I don't know what you're going through. But I want you to hear the words of Jesus to you. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He didn't say much, if anything. He was, he was silent. Somebody else at the park called the police, and they were thankfully able to bring him off the dam after we were gone. Later in the week, we read a, an article in the local newspaper about it. He had been in a fight with a girlfriend and was distraught about it, was contemplating taking his life. There's a man who is heavy laden. Maybe you're heavy laden today. He says, come to me, and I will give you rest. This would have reminded people, when he spoke of rest in that culture, of the prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 6, verse 16 says, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. What is the ancient path? What is the good way? Jesus comes onto the scene, John 14, 6, and he says, I am the way. What's it mean to come? It means to believe, to trust in Jesus. Isaiah 55, think about this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Talk about grace. All who labor and are heavy laden. Historians look at the perfect timing of Jesus stepping in as man. And the Greeks had been searching for meaning and truth for centuries. Historians tell us by the time Jesus got on the scene, they were getting frustrated 
They saw the futility of many of their dead ends. They were, they were looking for fulfillment and not finding it. That's a form of being heavy laden. Maybe you know that if you've been searching for peace in this world and you have not found it. The Jews had their own brand of being heavy laden. Acts 15.20 calls the law the, the yoke of the law. And the Pharisees at that time, many of them were making it worse by adding their own rules to it. You must follow this, and this, and this. And it, and it continually changed. Matthew 23.4 said that those leaders were tying up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they laid them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Now, you may not live under one of these Pharisees, but some of you know in your life what it's like to keep trying to earn someone's favor and to know that the carrot keeps moving. And you will never earn their favor to have that sense inside that you will never have it. Jesus says to folks like that, I will give you rest. You say, how? Because when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, his perfect obedience in his life as man is credited to your account. His death on the cross takes your sin to pay for them. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's rest instead of restlessness, right? That's forgiveness instead of condemnation. As RVG Tasker put it, there's relief in Jesus from such crushing burdens as crippling anxiety, the sense of frustration and futility, and the misery of a sin-laden conscience. It's not just coming to Jesus in faith. He goes on, verse 29. Is take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now I asked the 830 crowd, do you know what a yoke is? And some guy in the front row, Walter, said the yellow part. <laughs> so I'm not going to ask that again. <laughs> you all know it's a wooden implement put on farm animals to help them pull a burden, often linked up in, in twos. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. There's come, there's take, there's learn. Coming in the, the walk with Jesus, listen, is just the beginning. It's just the beginning. He says, take my yoke upon you and, and learn from me. And many have wondered over the years, when he says my yoke, is it the picture of how a younger oxen would often be paired up with an older oxen to learn how to pull? was Jesus saying, I'm right there next to you in that same yoke. Take my yoke upon you and learn. Learn is the Greek word methete. Methetes is the Greek word for disciple. To be a disciple is to be a learner. Take my yoke and learn. Coming's just the beginning. I thought about it like this. Our son Evan's on a cross-country team. Imagine last year we drive down to Chandler two hours for one of his meets, and he shows up there in street clothes, and the rest of his guys are at the starting line in their cross-country gear, and they're like, hey, man, what's up? What are you doing over there? He said, I came. And are like, uh, you're supposed to be running this race with us, man. Get your jersey and get out here and run with us. Together. 
And I think the same thing in our walk with Jesus. Coming to Jesus is, is just the beginning. There's this journey ahead of us as we take our yoke with him and, and learn from him. So what I want to say here is don't reject the light, but don't settle for just coming to the light either. Walk in the light. That's how John put it in 1 John. 1 John 1, 6. You want fellowship, intimate fellowship with Jesus? Listen to this. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. Now, even as I say that, some of us are thinking of the places we've stumbled in that walk. Maybe even this week. Maybe even this morning, right? I've got some good news for you. Say, what kind of teacher is Jesus? He says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Somebody needs to hear that. Because you may have had teachers or mentors along the way that gave up on you wrote you off for a lost cause. Jesus is not that teacher. He is gentle and lowly. He's a patient teacher. I love Philippians 1.6. It says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He goes on, and you will find rest for your soul. Check that out. Even as you work with Him, even as you're yoked up with Him working, there's rest for your souls. Why? Because now your work has purpose. Instead of futility, has His presence with you instead of you trying alone. It has His power instead of you being enslaved to sin. Verse 30, For my yoke is easy, not over easy, Walter, <laughs> we're almost <laughs> for my yoke is easy and my burden is light now some have looked at that phrase my yoke is easy in the Greek and said it could be translated my yoke fits well and they've gone back to the fact that what did Jesus do with his father before he began ministry he was a carpenter they said, hey, maybe even Jesus had a sign on his carpentry shop that said, my yoke fits well. <laughs> What's that mean? It, when it was on the animal, it wouldn't scratch or scrape or rough up the shoulders. It, it fit well. That's what Jesus says about the yoke he gives us as followers. It, it fits well. It's easy, and my burden is light. You say, why? Some of the things he calls us to are, are pretty big. <laughs> why is it light? couple ideas here. RVG Tasker says, because it's not so much external following this list out here anymore as, as loyalty to a person, which fosters glad and easy service. I'm, I'm loyal to Jesus. That's why I want to do this. Michael Green said, it's the response of the liberated, not of the obligated, and that makes all the difference. I'm not doing it to be made right with God. I'm doing it because he has made me right in Jesus. That makes it like and last but not least, it's, it's light because it's a burden that we should carry out of love. Out of love. I think about this and I think about Genesis 29, 20. And there's a lot to the story between Jacob and his uncle Laban. But just one verse here. 
And it says 29, 20 says, Jacob served seven years for Rachel, because that's what his uncle told me he had to do, and Jacob wanted to marry her. Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Oh, if we took that mindset and said, that's how I want to serve Jesus, right? I read it about Jacob, and I think back, some of you guys who are married a while like me, think back to the dating years. You got a date on Friday night, and you spend two and a half hours cleaning up that car, right? Getting it all tricked out. You're whistling, you're humming, you're not... You're, why? Because you love that gal, right? Now, some of us married guys need to get back to that again, because I'll confess, if I'm honest, if Carolyn asked if I was able to get the van washed, my first response isn't always whistling these days. Okay, confession time. Trying to grow. But you understand the idea. Those seven years went by like nothing. Why? Because he loved her. It's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.14. Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all. And therefore all died. And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who died for them. And was raised again. It's as though Paul is saying this. This is my own words here as I think about it. You, you carried my cross, Jesus. I'll take your yoke. You died my death. I'll live my life for you. Lord, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for a Savior who does not hold back in his truth. His truth that that, that comes right at our hearts and, and forces us to deal with what have we done with what you've shown us? What have, you, what have we done with what you've told us? And maybe today's the day. Maybe someone in here heard that and they say, that's where I'm at. I need to repent. I need to believe in Jesus. Bring them home. May this be the day they realize his death on that cross was for their sin. His raising, rising from the dead was for their victory. There's forgiveness and rest available in Jesus. Bring them home. The heavy laden. Bring them home. And maybe there's some of us who are believers who, who read this part about serving from love and sometimes that gets mixed up in our minds. We, we forget that, that we're accepted not because of what we do but because of what Jesus has done. And we've been trying to serve for the wrong reasons and it's made it heavy and miserable. Or remove that false yoke and for every true believer in this room, convince them of the fact that in Christ, you look at them, you see the righteousness of God and, and cause their love for you to boil up in response to your love for them, for that service to be a, a light burning going forward, to be compelled by that love. As we prepare for communion, Lord, we just pray that you prepare our own hearts. Say thank you the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and to deal with those questions. How do I need to respond to Him today? In Jesus' name, Amen.